Good morning. Good to see everyone. Make sure the sound is dialed in, the recorder started, and there's a signal going to it. All right. So now we have a sermon to preach. Today we're in the final section of 1 Corinthians 7, which we've been covering for quite a few weeks when I've been a preacher. We're in 1 Corinthians 7, 32 through 40. And I noticed when preparing for this particular message that one of the repeated terms in the Greek was the word for anxiety or concern. So I'm emphasizing that as something we need to learn from because it's important in the text. So we'll, uh, let's pray and then we'll begin going through the text. Thank you, Lord, for our opportunity to gather together in your name, to open the scriptures together, to learn what you've said, to believe what you've said, to apply what you've said, and knowing we need grace from you to grow and to be the people you've called us to be. Thank you for what you've done. We thank you, Lord, for answered prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we go to verse 32 through 34a, 1 Corinthians 7, we're asking the question, what are we anxious about? Let me read the text from the ESV. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. Now, if you haven't been here, I've got to put all this in a big context. There was evidently some situation in Corinth in the, the world they were living in that created a time of crisis. We don't know exactly what that was. Paul's giving advice about marriage based on some things they had communicated back and forth. And we've covered a lot of verses on this. So as we go on here, he's continuing in that, the vein of other things he said. What were those things? Well, that it's good to stay as you are, given the present crisis. But if someone marries, it's not sin. So um, Paul's not forbidding marriage, and he's not denigrating marriage. He has a high view of marriage. But something was going on that made it a very difficult crisis time, and it may be better to not um, engage in a, a new marriage at that time, and we'll see that some more today. So now he's concerned here about anxious. Now, in the Greek, I have the a transliteration of the Greek word, merimnao, and it means concerned or anxious. Now, there's a way it works a little differently in English, which makes translation uh, important. In Greek, the word can either mean in a positive sense, being concerned about what you ought to be concerned about, or it can mean having anxiety in a wrong way or a bad way. So it can be positive or negative. In English, I noticed if we want to speak about the idea in a negative way, we use anxiety. 
And if we want to speak about it in a positive way, we use to be concerned. Where if you translate the same way each time, that might be confusing. So I'll give you some examples of how it's used in both ways. One is found later in 1 Corinthians 12, 25. I'll read that to you. It says this, so that there may be, excuse me, so that there may be no division in body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. There's our word for anxiety or concern. Same word in the Greek. So there's obviously positive. We should care for one another. So the word can work either way. And so be aware of that. So here, he's concerned about anxieties. And there, it's used here with an alpha privative, meaning without, to be without anxieties. It's the same word, put the alpha in front of it, it negates it. So to be free from anxiety. Now, I want to cite some scholars, and I'm going to make a statement about this, and we'll try to put all this into context. I must say, it's been an interesting experience preaching through 1 Corinthians 7. It's been a lot of work, but I hope some benefit comes to everyone because there's many questions in this chapter. So let me cite Dr. Gardner. Paul is not finding fault with being married or with having to look after a relative, says Gardner. In 1 Timothy 5.8, Paul instructs Timothy, quote, whoever does not provide for relatives and especially for family members, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever, unquote. Nor is the apostle reversing his teaching earlier in chapter 7 that the husband and wife have responsibilities to each other. Rather, as he states in verse 35, continuing the quote from Gardner, both men and women, both men and women, married and unmarried, must recognize that their lives are to be devoted to the Lord. They must recognize both the advantages and disadvantages of the state in which they find themselves and in which they've been told to remain, verse 24. They had a crisis time. This is my statement. It was very difficult. Paul was advising to stay, remain as you are. We know that he has a high view of marriage from Ephesians 5. We know in the Bible from Genesis 2.24 that marriage is good and that God's ordained marriage. Life will have its anxieties and concerns and difficulties. No one is immune from them. We live in a fallen world. Families and marriage create a set of difficulties and anxieties. Being single has its difficulties and anxieties. Paul is advising every Christian that the one thing that we must be concerned about is being devoted to the Lord, and we'll talk about that. So I have a, and I, I have that in a statement here, which I just summarized. All Christians have issues in this life which pull us in various directions. We cannot let the inherent problems of living in this fallen world rob us of our focus on serving Christ and pleasing him. Even extreme problems, 
which seem impossible to resolve cannot be compared to the eternal glory which awaits those who know Christ. To continue my statement, our anxieties must be seen as temporary and transitory compared to believing God's promises and serving him by his grace. Dear ones, let each of us serve the Lord, love the Lord, and care for one another in the difficult world we live in, as we sometimes have questions that are very hard to answer. So let's go to verse 34b, which is a sentence in itself. 1 Corinthians 7, 34b. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit, but the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Now, I'm going to make some caveats about this in regard to how it's been interpreted falsely in church history, but I have a statement on the slide here. This continues Paul's advice. It must not be construed as anti-marriage. And I'll make a statement uh, and about church history. Church history is, for 2,000 years, a lot of it from 300 A.D. on, has had many, many false applications of this. And sometimes the more difficult some passages are, particularly some 1 Corinthians 7, have led to false applications. We have people taking oaths of celibacy, oaths of poverty, joining uh, groups like a monastery or a convent. We've had hierarchies created. We have the supposed celibate priesthood uh, introduced in order that certain people would be more holy. All of this is not what Paul's talking about. Paul affirms marriage. He affirms the validity of marriage. And he doesn't forbid marriage. Forbidding marriage is a doctrine of demons. But he is giving them advice. They had letters back and forth that we have, don't have extant. And there was a time of crisis. They asked him for advice. Some of them had really bad ideas. I'll talk about some of those. And he's telling them his concern, but not binding them to certain things. So we'll continue on that vein and try to help us. The one theme I see in this whole section is to be free from anxieties in a wrong way and be devoted to the Lord in a good way, no matter what our situation. There's nothing that happens in this world, either to us or in the arena of life we're living in, that should ever keep us from being devoted to the Lord, loving him looking forward to the return of Christ and wanting to please him. Now I'm going to cite Dr. Gordon Fee, who has helped me so much through the last 35, 40 years understand these things. He says this, if the verb means be anxious about, then this is probably a reflection, says Fee, of the Corinthians' point of view. They are striving to be holy in body as well as in spirit, 
by avoiding sexual relations. Such an understanding adds weight to the possibility of the negative view, that is, that this would be bad anxiety, back to fee. If, on the other hand, the verb means care for in a positive sense, then Paul, Paul probably intends by the phrase body and spirit something like holy in every way or completely, with body and spirit not to be thought of separately but together as designating the whole person. Now, that's important. Eric talked about it a little bit this morning in Sunday school, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. Some have wrongly said uh, huge religious traditions, wrongly said, well, if you want to be holy in body and spirit, then you take an oath of celibacy and join a cloistered group of people that avoid anything that may look like a temptation. That's not biblical. In fact, it's exactly opposite of what Paul teaches. It's not from God. It's not right. And it's abusive. Furthermore, such O's, which we're not to take, uh, have led to worse sin and worse bondage and worse abuse. So we're getting it wrong. The holiness God's concerned about is that which is for the whole person. It's not as if the body is the big problem, and if we could just be disembodied spirits, then we'd really be holy. That's not the point. That's a Gnostic false teaching. Body and spirit would mean the whole person. 1 Corinthians 15 will affirm the importance of the body because there's a body, bodily resurrection. We saw earlier, 1 Corinthians 7, there were likely some Gnostic or spiritual ones in Corinth who, though married, were not uh, having normal marital relations. And that was rebuked by Paul earlier. So just get the extreme teachings from church history put away and get back to the real world we live in. The holiness God has for us is not destroyed because we're married. It's not destroyed because we're single. It's not destroyed because we're living an ordinary life in the world. The holiness that God has for Christians will persevere in whatever situation we're in. And sometimes we have decisions to make. He's helping them make some decisions in a time of crisis. So here's my statement. Biblically, body and spirit are both important and the whole person is to be devoted to the Lord. There's no such thing as anatomical sanctification, trying to divide up body, soul, and spirit, as some have done. We need to be devoted to the Lord. God cares about you, and he cares about each of us as a whole person. Nothing that is uh, about the life that we live, whether single, married, in a time of prosperity or time of great difficulty or whatever stage of life we're in, there's nothing that the Lord won't give us grace to live devoted to him right now as we are and as we make our decisions. Let's go to verse 35 and 36. 
I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, Paul says, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. Now again, going back to the earlier sermons that, that we talked about these things in 1 Corinthians 7, it's not a sin to be married. And we talked about the passions earlier in a sermon from a verse that brought this up. Now I want to point out to you that this particular verse has had two major different interpretations, and the New American Standard actually uh, translated as if the other one were the case, but I don't think it's right. One version of this says that this is about fathers, whether they're going to give their daughters in marriage to someone. And the NASB actually translated it that way. Now, that uh, interpretation has so little going for it, hardly anyone, that, but the scholars that I have access to, don't think that's viable. Neither do I, and here's why. If Paul's topic was fathers, whether to give away their daughter to someone who was a Christian man, uh, where is it in 1 Corinthians 7? We've gone through, now we'll be 40 verses when we're done with this chapter. The idea of fathers and daughters hasn't come up. So if it was going to be introduced right here, that would just, the term would have to come up. Paul would have to say, now fathers, but he doesn't. So I'm going to rule that out. I don't believe that's right. This is about someone who is contemplating uh, going through with a marriage where there's already a betrothal, which was a very important thing in their world. And so if anyone thinks he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if passions are strong, let him do as he wishes. In other words, making that decision. Now, there's some words in the Greek that are rather interesting. He says, I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint. The word for restraint, to lay a restraint, is like a lasso that you'd see in a rodeo. You have the noose and the rope. Got that beast. That's how you lasso something in the, the Greek. So, uh, the purpose statement, not in order that, which would be a negated purpose, I might throw a noose on you. So he's not trying to lasso anybody and tie him up with a noose, uh, which would be something for animals. Paul's concern is pastoral. So let's just do a simple restatement of what Paul says. Not a noose, but undivided devotion to the Lord. That's his bottom line. Undivided devotion toward the Lord. That's for singles, it's for married, it's for people making decisions, for people living in good times, difficult times, crisis times, any country, anywhere, anytime, in a church age. God has grace for us to live, not bound in a bad way, but with undivided devotion to the Lord. Dr. Fee says, by these words, Paul does not want to restrict them as the ascetics would, but to free them 
for whatever is appropriate in their case, apparently either marriage or celibacy, so that they may have constant and unhindered devotion to the Lord. Fee continues, for the gifted celibate, that would mean celibacy, but for the betrothed whose gift is not celibacy, but whose devotion to the Lord has been hindered by the ascetics, that those are, by the way, asceticism is trying to gain sanctification through severe treatment of the body, self-deprivation, harsh treatment, go live in a cave, whatever it is, trying to be holy that way. That's asceticism. The ascetic would be the one who believes that. So back to Fee, uh, whose devotion to the Lord has been hindered by the ascetics demanding that a person be so what is appropriate is a marriage. So some would be saying, no, you can't get married. You can't go through with your betrothal. Then God will be unhappy with you, and you'll be a really bad Christian. And there's groups have sprung up that think that ordinary life is the problem, so you should be cloistered with other Christians just like you, or you should take an oath that you'll never be married or whatever. That's not the point. That's not biblical. Now, the word for passions, I'm not trying to overcomplicate this. I'm trying to help us understand it. Believe me, it took a lot of days of study. But the text is the text. Now, why did some come up with the idea this is a father uh, deciding whether or not his daughter can be given in marriage? Well, because of another word here. The word here for passions, huperachmas, can also mean beyond peak. So if you took the father-daughter version, he might be thinking, my daughter is getting rather old. I think it's time for her to be given in marriage. Uh, but it can also mean passion in another context. So I went with this because I think it fits the entire context, 1 Corinthians 7. Be comforted. The next time I preach will be in chapter 8. It comforts me. I'm not saying that chapter 7 isn't worth studying because I've already done so much with it. But it's, there's difficulties because we're in it. we don't know necessarily what they were even talking about with each other in their previous letters. So we're trying to understand this. I don't think the father thing has anything going for it because we haven't seen it in the context. Now, let me make a statement that I wrote down because I want to make sure I get it right when I share it with you. So here's my statement about this whole thing here. We must not create any second-class citizens by making Paul's personal preferences the means of deciding who is the greatest. Church history is filled with false ways of creating spiritual hierarchies based on versions of spirituality which are, in fact, man-centered and carnal. Taking oaths which amount to rejecting ordinary life in favor of eccentric, cloistered life which is falsely deemed as being holy, is in fact embracing the noose Paul was not promoting. 
How many have been roped into a false piety which is bondage to man-made religion? The result is never holiness, just more egregious sin. Religious oaths have no power against passions. It doesn't work. If you're interested, listen to this series of audios from Dr. John MacArthur about the, the priest or the supposed celibate priesthood. He has a great series on that. I think it's very compassionate. It just shows the horrible misery people have been put under in a false system of religion that's demanding things God never taught. Let's go to verses 37 and 38. How do we make decisions? That's something that comes up a lot, and Paul addresses it here. The person deciding whether to marry. Here we go. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well. He who refrains from marriage will do even better. Again, often misinterpreted by taking it out of context. I'll address that. So let me outline the four things that Paul says about making a decision on this matter. Number one, stand firm in his conviction. In other words, you're grounded. One thing that's really bad is somebody decides to marry and then later says, well, I think I goofed, I got the wrong one. And eventually just all kinds of fears and doubts and everything comes in. It's not good. Number two, no outside force or compulsion. Nobody's forcing you to do this. Number three, has authority over his own will. That's what's in the Greek, will. Authority of his own will. You're making your decision. Number four, that was number three. Number four, reaching a decision through making up his own mind. Thinking over reasonably and rationally what's important, what kind of times are we living in, what's the best thing, and making a decision, and then trusting God as you go forward. It's a battle to be and stay buried in this world that's under such attack against godly Christian marriage. But God will keep us and give us grace. It's not easy to be single in this world either. God will give grace as is needed. Now, I want to make a statement about well and better. We've got to go back to the context. Paul himself was single. In a time of crisis, he thought that's better, but he said that's not the law. That's, that's not a, it's not a sin to marry. You might think there's a famine or a massive world war going on, and sometimes people don't marry during that kind of time. I'm a part of the baby boomer generation, and uh, we're not exactly babies anymore, are we? Uh, but after World War II, the people coming back from the war, massive amounts of marriages because they wanted to get on with families and nation building. 
And I'm honored to have been raised by the, that generation, the veterans, and the people in our community. It was an amazing time. It was a good time. But it might be something like that that would cause the waiting. Here's my statement. The well and better comparison is based on what has already been said about the present crisis, whatever it was, and Paul's own inclinations, which are not binding on the church. So this does not help anybody who say, if you want to be a really great Christian, take O's, join a cloistered group, and uh, uh, forbid marriage. Because that's not right. It's wicked. It's wicked. And I will say so, and I don't care who doesn't like it. Because we've got to go by Scripture, not by the traditions of man. The noose is still being put around people in a religious sense. We're lassoing you, lassoing you like in the rodeo, tying you up, and you better do what we say, or you're not a very good Christian. Or if you want to be a really good Christian, then you've got to do what we tell you to do. No, we just need to stay within the binding and loosing that's already in the Bible. 3940, as we finish the chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, 3940, Paul affirms the marriage. <clears throat> Here's what he says. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom he, she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she's happy if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. And I'll talk about that. Earlier, we saw other discussions. The person who was married to an unbeliever was willing to stay. Then they, she should stay in that state, or he should stay in that state, trusting for conversion. But if the unbeliever leaves, that person is not under bondage, and we've covered that earlier. But this is talking about the one becoming married. Married. At wedding ceremonies, we often hear cited, till death do us part. And so that affirms the view of marriage, this ideal that we hold to, but it doesn't always work out that way. And Paul's already addressed cases where it didn't. And so we live in a fallen world, and the one thing we must look to is our devotion to the Lord. I will close in our applications with this being betrothed to the Lord in a sense that's for all Christians, not just certain people who took oaths. Now, notice he says, I, too, have the Spirit of God. That shows me, and some of the commentators point this out, that the hyper-pious ones in Corinth were having a deleterious effect on the belief of some of the Christians there. There were people who thought they were more pious, and they were following the Spirit. They were the pneumatikos, the spiritual ones, or the pneumatikoi, that's plural. And they were going to even abstain from normal relations in marriage. Paul rebukes them. And so they claimed they had the Spirit. Paul says, I too have the Spirit, probably somewhat ironically. So the death of the husband makes the woman free to marry in the Lord. Here's what Dr. Fee said about this. To be in the Lord is to have one's life 
come under the eschatological view of existence outlined at the beginning. Such a woman lives from such a radically different perspective and value system from that of a pagan husband that a mixed marriage, where they're, they're two become one, is simply unthinkable. If she becomes a believer after marriage, then she should maintain a marriage with the hope of winning him to the Lord. But it makes no sense from Paul's perspective, says he, for one to engage in such a marriage once one is a follower of Christ. Short, let me shorten that. Be marrying someone is not a good evangelistic plan. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, I, this is the only person I can find. I, I, I got to be married, and I think maybe I can lead him to the Lord after we're married. Paul is saying no to that. Notice, married to whom she was just only in the Lord. Think about the radical nature of conversion. You're going from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to the kingdom of his beloved son. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. As we contemplate marriage as Christians, if we're walking in the light, we want to be married to someone else who is. And that's what he's talking about. We're in two different domains. And once the conflict of domains begins within the marriage, it's very difficult. We've already seen that. So I agree with... um, he, he makes some other caveats I want you to know about. I think he has it right. Does not the scripture say, in fact, that singleness is better than marriage? To which the answer is no. First of all, this, re- this, first of all, this reflects Paul's own opinion, verses 25 and 40. He's concerned throughout that it not be taken as scripture, that it is some commandment or principle. This is an ad hoc answer, says Fee, in light of some present distress. But more importantly, the passage that has troubled many, verses 36 to 38, is not a judgment on marriage or singleness per se at all, but on whether or not engaged couples in that setting should get married. So keep the context in mind. Back to Fee. Paul thinks it better for them if they do not, but he also makes it clear that marriage is a perfectly valid option. It has nothing to do with good and evil, or even better or worse, but with good and better in light of that situation. That's all. So don't make more of it as if Paul doesn't know Genesis 2.24, which he cites elsewhere, or um, hasn't taught what he has in Ephesians 5 and uh, about marriage. So Paul, I'm going to make my statement, and then we'll go to the next verse. Um, Paul may be ironically rebuking the Corinthian pneumatics who claimed they had a higher spirituality from that came from the Spirit, and this led to their slogan, in its odd applications in the Corinthian church, 7-1. For those of you who were with us back then, there's a statement that's their slogan. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. We saw that that's their slogan. Paul corrects it. 
Okay? So that slogan of the Corinthians influences a lot of this. When Paul says, I think I too have the Spirit, humbly depending on him, he's ironically saying, of course, he's an apostle, that he's giving solid advice based on what he knows in the Lord. So let's go to some applications, two of them. We must learn from the Bible what we should and should not be concerned about. Number two, all Christians must be concerned about holy and pure devotion to the Lord as we are being prepared to meet him. It is so difficult, dear ones, for us to think biblically in a world that doesn't. And the world around us has has gone crazy over the idea, before I get to the passages we're going to talk about, they've gone crazy over the idea that if somebody has some feeling or inclination or idea about what might make them happy, they've got to have it, and they've got to have it right now, and the government better provide it for them. And it's just gone so... I don't know what you're going to talk about in the meeting, but it's just awful. It's so... I was thinking of my dad, who was the chairman of the school board in the 60s, and they were so devoted to people getting a great education and reading and being ready to step right into college and do well when they got there. That's where they were going. I can't imagine my father having to deal with the stuff that they're talking about now. It wasn't even on anybody's agenda. They'd never heard of such a thing. Boys were boys, girls were girls. How radical can you get? That's my two cents. I think it's worth more than that. That was the World War II generation that came back. and They wanted their children to have an education. They wanted homes, families, neighborhoods, community, because they had to defer marriage for years. Well, the men went off to war, and some of the women. When they came back, they wanted to build a community. I'm very honored that my father was a veteran World War II and that he found a wonderful wife, my mom, whom most of you know, and that I was raised in a family of people who cared about the community they were in, and they didn't feel compelled to listen to somebody's radical agenda. All right, there. Be concerned about the well-being of God's flock. Let's talk about the church. Be concerned about for the well-being of God's flock. Philippians 2, 2021. Now, he's talking about Timothy. Let me read verse 19, then we'll start with 20. Verse 19 says, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. Verse 20. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will generally be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. So Timothy, who's faithful to the gospel, to the word of God, co-worker with Paul, would be concerned. There's our word 
It can also be tra- translated anxious. Same word in the Greek, meribnao. And he, Timothy, shows what's important. This is a word for every church, every pastor, elder, deacons, and for one another, anywhere in the world. The primary thing the church is there for is the well-being of the Lord's flock. And churches, meaning congregations of believers, are not there to enhance the career of the pastor. They're not there to make someone big and important and powerful amongst his peers out there. The church is the people of God. And even in Paul's days, there's someone who cares for the Lord's dear flock whom he died for. He cares for us. Cancer cares on him. He cares for you. And nothing can be more important than the welfare of the Lord's precious flock. We don't have to please the world. We don't want to please the world. The world's hostile to us. But we need to care for people the Lord sent. Whoever he converts should never be rejected, but should be embraced and loved and cared for. Now, all Christians should have these qualities. Let me cite to you Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. The number one quality of the sort of person Paul's thinking of would be concern, not for their own self-interest, but for that, those of others, and particularly the Lord's precious flock. It takes a lifetime of devotion to learning carefully the Word of God so that our minds become trained to think biblically. The teachings of Jesus. We see the many parables and things in the Gospels about the hypocrites who, what they want to get out of things is accolades from their peers. Long robes, lengthened garments, honorable greetings, Oh, look at who's here. Some great person. Jesus warned about it. The least will be the greatest. He gives parables about this. Do we see what the Lord has as important? Concern for the welfare. And so that's the word for anxious, but not in a negative sense. We should be not only pastors, elders, same people, sense, deacons, but everyone should be concerned about one another. And so there it's used in a positive sense as a Christian virtue. Concern for others is a Christian virtue. Anxiety isn't good. And we'll look at the negative side of it. Staying in Philippians, let's go to the next slide. Here we have the what we're not to be anxious for. It's the same word in the Greek. So notice in English, uh, we have in the one, they translate this concerned. 
same word in the Greek, and here, anxious. That's just how English works. In the Greek, it's the same word, but the context will tell you which version of it we're talking about. Anxiety versus godly concern. Now, let's read it. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notice, promise of God. As we bring our anxieties to God, who cares for us, there's a promise that the peace of God will guard our, stand a guard over our hearts. There's a reason anxieties arise. We live a precarious existence in this world. The older we get, it's a battle to stay alive. We pray for one another. By the way, our brother Steve is uh, doing better. He's out of the surgery and uh, continue to pray for him. Um, I heard from him last night, so I wanted to share that as we've been praying for our brother Steve. Um, we need each other. We need to show up. We need to care. It's not really, you don't need to go to some success seminar to learn how to care for people. The number one thing we need to know is show up. Show up. My dad, the farmer, taught me that. He said this, all the work in the world is done by the ones who show up. So farmers have some pretty basic ideas, but it's true. If you don't show up, you're not really helping. So, and that means in this case, to visit, to pray, to call, send a card, to do what you have to do to take care of each other. Um, the direction not to be anxious is imperative in the Greek. And it's a negated presence, present tense. I learned when I say Greek the first time in uh, Bible college, a negated present means stop being anxious. It implies that they already are. They should stop doing it. Stop being anxious. But is an adversative, it's a contrast. Now, the, the alternative is prayer and supplication. Now, this is so important. Most books written about prayer are false. It's almost impossible to find a book on prayer that's not pietist. You've got to do this, this way, this way, that way. You've got to prove you mean it. You've got to do this first, and on and on and on. And hardly anybody's going to write a simple book that says that we have access to the throne of grace. God has bought us, made us his children. He loves us. We bring our concerns to him. He hears us, and he cares for us. Hebrews 4, 16. The truth is so simple, people don't write a book about it and call it the secret to prayer. They write books about their convoluted pietistic doctrine like they know something us dolts don't. 
And we are, our lives aren't so great because we don't know the secret. Throw that stuff away. It's nonsense. That's not how our Heavenly Father cares about his precious sons and daughters. He's not going to make you jump through hoops. He's not going to say, I won't answer you because you don't mean it badly enough. You haven't done long enough. You haven't fasted long enough. You haven't jumped through this hoop or you didn't uh, say these things or go to this seminar or whatever. He cares for you. And we are to care for one another. And that means to show up, to visit, to care, to pray, to love. So stop being anxious and pray to God. The words for prayer, there's three of them, actually. Prosuke, uh, which is the most common word for prayer. That's the first one, by prayer, prosuke. The next one, desis, may mean supplication or entreaty. And the third is kind of a particular needs that are made known. It includes the needs in detail that are made known to God. Why? Not because God doesn't know everything, because we need to realize he cares about us, and we particularly give the details to him, because God, in his omniscience, can hear the prayers of millions of people going on simultaneously, and his omnipotence can answer prayers. And we don't need, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So those are the words. Now, I have a statement I have here in my notes I wanted to share with you. Um, so there's a negated imperative, then an imperative to pray. That's the point there. Here's my statement. These imperatives show the urgency of bringing all, it says all in the Greek, situations, difficulties, and anything that is the source of our anxiety to God, who in his providence cares for us and promises to bring us to glory. If the all things statement, all things, tapanta, here it's just the all, if the all things statement in the Bible are literal, then those who are promised that God in his providence uses even that which our enemies intend for our harm, for our eternal glory, then we can have peace and not anxiety. If our worst enemies intend something for evil, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. Not height, nor depth, principalities, powers, that's our enemies. Things present, things future. We're in God's care, but he uses means. And one means that we're reading about right here is prayer. If we pray and bring our detailed needs to God, we have peace rather than anxiety because he knows we know he cares for us. And if the thing that we fear the most, God forbid, should happen, it will never separate us from the love of God because God is bringing us to glory. He keeps his promises. 
I heard it. I think this was a line in a song. I was listening to lots of new gospel songs. I didn't know were out there. Somebody told me what channel to find them. But I heard someone say this. Put it in God's hands and leave it there. That struck me because I think I oftentimes put it in God's hands and decide to take it back. I put it in God's hands, but I don't think I worried about it enough yet. Not a good idea. Put it in God's hands, leave it there, and trust him. Let's go to the last slide here. I have a few minutes. And this is an amazing thing. It's very important. I wanted to cover this because it uses that same word about being betrothed. And there's an analogy with Christ in the church. I'll also, I'll read two and three, and then we're also going to look at verse four. Paul says this, for I am jealous for you, to the same Corinthian church, by the way, in Second Corinthians, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And then verse 4, For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear with this beautifully, that's irony. They don't want to listen to Paul preaching the true God, the true Christ, God the Son, the creator, the sinless one, the savior, the one who died for sins once for all, who lived the sinless life, was raised from the dead, sent into heaven, whose blood is shed for sins, who calls us to repent and turn to him. That's the gospel. But if somebody has a gospel of works or the deeper life or the higher life or the NAR type, we're the new apostles and prophets, don't be stuck with just the biblical ones. And uh, then they have all kinds of things they, they come up with. This is leading us astray from purity of devotion to Christ. A faith that's unsullied by false teaching. Over decades now, since the mid-80s, I've had people say, why do you keep correcting error? It's too negative. Why do you keep doing that? Just talk about the positive. In other words, it's all good. God's at work. Let's just have a happy time. While in the meantime, Satan is busy undermining, harming, deceiving, perverting, and destroying Christians. No, we can't do that. We can't just sit back and say, well, it'll all work out. We need to deal with air and explain what's wrong with it and what the biblical alternative is. Paul does that. So betrothed in a sense is there is a marriage. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. That article, I guess, is available. I wrote about that. Um, dining with the king. Yes, we're concerned. we got to be concerned about that. How much more so? If through the gospel we're betrothed to Christ... This is not one individual's 
married to Christ because they're, they took an oath. This is the church. It's corporate. The whole church is betrothed to Christ. Hallelujah. And God promises to keep us so that if we start devoting ourselves to a different Christ, a created Christ, a Christ is no different than we are. A Christ who lost his divinity had to go to hell and be born again like a sinner would. That's what some people teach. If we have a different Christ, then it's, then it's wrong. This is not the same Christ. So, yes, Paul is concerned. Don't allow yourself to be deceived by craftiness, but be devoted to Christ and by his grace to one another. This satanic seduction against the purity of the bride is always doctrinal. When we started in the 80s talking about this, or at least I did, pastors say, people don't want doctrine. Why are you always talking about doctrine? Well, the word doctrine simply means teaching, didaskalo, didaskalos. And so, what do you have in your church? I said to some pastors, does somebody teach every Sunday? Yeah. Well, then you got doctrine too. So the issue isn't whether you have doctrine, it's whether it's biblical doctrine or the thoughts of some pneumatic who knows something us ordinary adults don't know. What is being taught? I hope it's pure devotion to Christ. So as we've run out of time here, we've covered, thank you for being patient to allow me to teach through all of chapter 7. And uh, I hope, and I, I don't know that I've heard from some that God is using this, to, even with some of the questions, we can make decisions and learn things from the Bible that are going to help us. So thank you. And I do pray that this would be the case, that we'd be safe, that we care for each other, that we're looking forward to that marriage supper of the Lamb, that we may not be drawn aside away from our purity of devotion to Christ, whatever this life may bring. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to look into these things. Thank you for keeping us and giving us many precious promises. May everyone here, no matter how difficult life may be, whatever issues may be going on, may we always know that we can safely bring every concern to you, and that you hear us, and that you care about us, and that you'll bring us to glory. We do pray for those who are hurting and suffering, that you bring the help that they need, and help us to care for one another. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. I will give the benediction from Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. God bless you, dear saints. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next week. Thank you.